some traveling lately because of wedding planning, things like that. When I was in high school, I wouldn't get packed unless my mom helped me pack all my stuff up. And then when I started packing myself, I would pack everything or two of everything that I thought I'd need and I'd have this big suitcase with me. And then over time, I started kind of narrowing it down to the essentials. And I always tell myself, okay, you're only going to be gone one night, two nights, three nights. You don't need to bring your whole wardrobe and entertainment and things like that. You're only going to be gone for a night. But I'm reminded as I think about that of a story I was a camp counselor right after my senior year of high school, and I had some kids that would come, and they had two of everything. I mean, their mom packed them. They brought this huge suitcase in. They had all their toiletry items. You know, they had snacks and all these different things, and they are just decked out. And then I had other kids where they could fit everything they brought into this little itty-bitty, you know, bag that they brought with them. I can remember one week, the parents would come back to the cabin and help them carry all their stuff. And one kid who had not brought a lot, he said, Mom, I did it. I wore the same underwear all week, and the counselor didn't notice. And that's where that smell came from, because I've been wondering all week where that smell had come from. And that is where the smell came from. It came from that kid. And you start realizing what is actually essential to what you need. What, are you gonna for- what have you forgotten you're going to have to pick up somewhere. What do you actually need to bring with you? We're not just talking about what's essential for packing a suitcase this morning. We're talking about what is essential to the gospel. Because in our society today, we deal with people who try to add things to the gospel or take away things from the gospel. And it's, if we don't understand the essentials of the gospel, we can't be saved. Consider some of these statistics. Now, again, every survey, they interview a group of people, you know, so I can't tell you exactly where the numbers came from, but they should at least be a little bit surprising to us. Of a group of people who call themselves American Christians, 48% believed that if they were good in life, they could earn a place in heaven. 54% believed that they were going to heaven when they died. Imagine that. 54% of people who call themselves Christians believe they were going to heaven when they died. Only 33% believed that they were going to heaven because of confessing their sins and acknowledging Christ as Savior. Of the 52%, they said that man was born basically good and not sinful. 51% said that God accepts worship from all religions. And then of that, there was around 30% that said Jesus was the first created being, that he was not the Son of God, but that he was created. Now, again, where did they interview these people? I don't think any of us were necessarily represented in those numbers. But it does go to show you how far the American church can get away from the gospel. And how can we do that? It's because we add things to the gospel. We take things away from the gospel. This isn't just about arguing who's right. We're not just trying to say, okay, they're wrong and we're right. This is about where does a person go when they die? God, who is the ultimate judge, will look at all of us when we die, and he will allow people into heaven who have confessed their sins and believed in Christ. It's not because of anything we've done. It's because Christ has died and paid for our sins. So this brings us to the question, what is the gospel? 
What is it that we believe that is the gospel? And if you have your Bible, keep your finger in Acts. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. As Paul is explaining to the Corinthians what the gospel is, these are pretty common verses used to explain what you need to believe about Christ in order to accept the gospel. Verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. So he's saying this is the gospel. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice what he says. He says, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And it's because of Christ's death that we can confess our sins to him, trust in him as savior. You know, it's why we sing songs like the one that we just introduced, because it shows us the gospel, that Christ died, that he rose again, that it's finished on the cross. One of my professors put it this way. He says he likes to use these statements when sharing the gospel with someone. He's like, these are the things you need to believe in order to understand the gospel. First of all, there is a God and it is not you. How many people need to understand that in life? That there is a God out there and guess what? It is not you. And so many people, even ourselves included, Make ourselves the center of the universe. There's a God and it's not you. Secondly, he says there is a problem and that is you. There is a sin problem in the world. The problem is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thirdly, he says there is a savior and he also is not you. So many people think they can earn their way to heaven. They can pay for their sins themselves. You can't do that. It's Jesus Christ who is the Savior. He finished that work on the cross. He died for your sins. If you accept him, you can have eternal life. And then lastly, he says there is a plan and it is not about you. And you say, wait a second, thought the plan of the gospel was about me. What well, includes you? You can be saved through the gospel, but the plan is all about God bringing glory back to himself. So many people, of what forever reason, they think they're not that sinful. They think they are God. They think everything's all about them. They don't understand the gospel. As we look at this passage in Acts, we see that there is a debate over what is essential to the gospel. And this is a pivotal moment in the, early, in the history of the early church. Just notice that this is in Acts 15, the center of the book. Right in the middle, there is this huge conflict over what is essential to the gospel and how they deal with this issue is going to change the trajectory of the church. So we see these people in the book of Acts as we have this Jerusalem council is what it's called. They're deciding what is necessary to believe in the gospel. There were Jewish Christians who were trying to say, yes, you need to believe in the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, that he rose again, that if you confess your sins to him, you will be saved but you also need to be circumcised. But you also need to follow the Mosaic law. And what they're trying to show is that that is not essential to the gospel. So let's look at Acts 15 together. And what I want us to see this morning is this. It's that we should remember that we've been saved by grace. I trust that the majority of us here are Christians this morning who know Jesus Christ as Savior. So what do we need to do? We need to remember that we've been saved by grace and see what that means in our Christian life. 
So first of all, look with me at what happens in Acts 15. We're going to see in verses 1 through 6 that there is a recurring issue. A recurring issue. This has been a problem in the early church, and we're going to see it come up here at the beginning of Acts 15. Look at verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, let's back up for a second. Where are we? Well, we're in the church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas have been on a missionary journey. They've gone to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. In one of those cities, people thought they were Greek gods, and they literally tried to worship them. And then when they found out they weren't Greek gods, they tried to stone them to death and stone Paul almost to death. So they've kind of been through it, and they're back to Antioch for about six months to a year. And there is a lot that happens during this time. And why do we know that? If you read the book of Galatians, especially Galatians chapter 2, you're going to see that there is a lot that happens between Acts 14 and 15. In fact, there's a resource out by the foyer. It's a timeline of Acts um, 9 through 15. We're not going to go through all of it, but hopefully it can be a reference to you. I'm someone where when there's a lot of confusing events, I kind of just need to see it laid out for me. I don't know if we have that to be able to show on the screen, Schaefer. So as we look at this, in fact, turn to the book of Galatians with me for just a moment, because this will help us see what's going on. We talked about Galatians in Sunday school. It's a book that deals with what is essential to the gospel. And in fact, it's the only book in the New Testament that Paul writes where he doesn't say anything good about the church. All the other books, even the Corinthians, he says, hey, I'm thankful for you. I'm happy to see your progress. He starts out his letter to the Galatians in verse 6, and he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ. Imagine if we had a guest missionary speaker come, and instead of saying, hey, I'm thankful for your support. I love you guys. He said, I'm astonished at you. I don't think we'd be wanting him to come back necessarily anytime soon, but this shows what was happening. They were abandoning the gospel, and there's a problem in this church People were trying to add circumcision in the law of Moses to the gospel. They did not understand the essential gospel. So in Acts 9, when Paul first visits Jerusalem, we see that coincides with Galatians 1, when Paul visits Jerusalem after Damascus. All right, this is where it gets interesting. In Acts 2, it talks about how Paul visits Jerusalem and meets with people there. I think that happens in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30. And then, if you look at Acts 2.11, we find a really interesting story. In fact, look at those verses with me. It says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. What's going on here? There is a dispute between Paul and between Peter. It's not actually recorded in the book of Acts. And why is that? It says, For certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So before these Jewish Christians came to Antioch, Peter was friendly with the Gentiles. He was eating lunch with them. They were all really close. When Peter comes to Antioch, or when the men who were Jewish come from Antioch, Peter doesn't want to be seen with them anymore. In fact, he has a double standard. And what does Paul do? He says, I opposed him to his face. You ever had some friends who you, you know, maybe sit with at lunch and then when the cool kids came by, they went to the other table, you know? 
Peter is having a double standard. He's not associating with the Gentiles when the Jewish Christians come. And notice what else happens. Verse 13, it says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas is a really good character in the book of Acts. He was a really good man. He's called the son of encouragement. But even Barnabas was led astray by this. And so Paul has to tell them before them all, he opposes them and he shows them that you can't force Gentiles to try to live like Jewish people. And now why do I mention all this? I think all of this, Acts 2.11 through Acts 2.14 or 15, happens right during this period between Acts 14 and 15. So this is all in the background. And this is part of why I think Paul goes to Jerusalem and tries to settle this matter. So you can keep this timeline, refer to it if you need to. Let's go back to the book of Acts. We see that around this time when Peter decides not to eat with the Gentiles, it's because these men come. Now, I don't think James sent them, but they did come from Jerusalem and they had this double standard. He said, yes, we believe that you're saved by grace, but if you're a Gentile, you need to be circumcised. Now, circumcision isn't a bad thing, but it's also just, it's neutral. It wasn't bad or good. It was just a thing. It was a thing that was part of the Jewish law to show who was God's people. But they didn't know what to do. The problem was, what happens to all these Gentiles who get saved that have not been circumcised? By the way, this isn't just about circumcision. It's about whether or not they need to follow the law of Moses. And we've seen this come up a little bit in Acts, and this is where it really comes to the forefront. Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had, it says, no small dissension. Some of your Bibles might say a sharp debate. This was a very serious matter, argument that they had. It says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So that sharp debate, I really do think, was Paul confronting Peter and even Barnabas and saying, you can't have a double standard. The Gentiles are safe too. They're equal with the Jews. So we're going to see them go up to Jerusalem and look at verse 3. It says, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So this was, I believe it was 250 miles or so from Antioch to Jerusalem. So it took them about 18 days. And while they're going, they go to all these different churches that are in the Samaria area, and they share with them what? What God has done, how God is saving the Gentiles. And notice how these churches respond. It says, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. They're excited because God is moving. He's working in the Gentiles. Gentiles are being saved around the modern world during that time. Look at verse 4. It says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So I don't think this is necessarily a formal like missions presentation. I just think they got there and they start telling people everything that is going on over in Antioch and beyond into the Galatian area. But notice they see some opposition again. Look at verse 5. It says, But some of the believers belonged to the party of the Pharisees 
And they rose up and they said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Would those Christians have said that you needed to be saved by grace? Yes, but they couldn't get past the fact that if you weren't circumcised, they thought you were unclean. And so again, we see this reoccurring issue. It comes back up in Jerusalem. And that's why Paul and Barnabas are there. And then look at verse 6. It says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider the matter. Now, we see that they're opposed by this group that's from, it says, the party of the Pharisees. I think these were probably Pharisees who had become Christians. If you remember back, I think it was Acts chapter 8 or 9, we see that a large number of Pharisees actually were saved and they became Christians. And some more wanted to be saved, but they were afraid of being opposed by certain religious groups. So I think these were former Pharisees who became Christians, but... They still think you need to be circumcised. So we see this is a major issue that the church is facing at this time. In fact, if the church doesn't answer this question right, it's going to affect the rest of the movement. Our church today and churches around the world face similar issues. In fact, throughout the history of the church, we've seen the church face different issues that it faces In the 1500s, imagine being alive during the 1500s. I don't think anybody was alive during that time. During the Reformation, when the Catholic Church was kind of dominating the landscape, and all of a sudden there's this Reformation, and the Reformers say the Word of God is the final authority. Most of those people didn't have the Bible in their own language where they could read it. Imagine being alive during the 1700s with the Revolution, you know, Christians had to answer questions about whether it was right to rebel against Britain as Americans. In the 1800s, you've got tent revivals and people speaking in tongues and all these other things going on. And even imagine, did any of us think that 10 to 15 years ago, we'd be dealing with the issues and the questions that the church faces today with social media, with abortion, with all these different questions that we have about the family Could any of us have imagined even 10 to 15 years ago that the church would be where it is today? And I think it shows this, that the church through history has these challenges and these questions that come up and new challenges that arise. But the answer is always the same. And what is that? They go back to God's word. They ask, what does God's word say? And we're going to see these Christians do that. And so just to pause for a moment before we continue, how do you deal with issues that come up in the Christian life in our church? You see, sometimes different personalities can react differently. For example, are you prone to worry, to become sad, say, oh man, the world is getting worse and worse. It's becoming harder to be a Christian. Maybe you're prone to be angry, argumentative, getting arguments on Facebook and social media. Maybe you try to depend on your own logic. You think, I'm smart enough to figure this out. I don't need the Bible. You think about your own reasoning, skills you learn from a debate club. I don't know if anybody was in a debate club, but do you compromise on God's word to make others happy? Some people, when it gets tough, when there's pressure, they start to fold and they start to say, you know what? It's it's okay. We just got to make everyone happy. Are you prone to do that or do you hold fast on God's word. These are issues that have been in man's heart 
since the Garden of Eden. And there, throughout 2,000 years of church history, we see the church facing these monumental challenges and having to answer life's questions. So we see this is, again, a big issue, a reoccurring issue that the church has to face. Notice with me, secondly, they not only had this reoccurring issue, but they have this shared reasoning, a shared reasoning. We're going to see a few different people speak up and speak to this issue. Look at verse 7 with me. We're going to see, first of all, what Peter has to say. In verse 7 it says, And after there had been much debate, we don't know what was said, we know there was much debate. Maybe you've heard some people argue before, and you're like, you know what, I don't even want to say anything about it. They just fought a lot. This is what Luke tells us. There was much debate, and then Peter stands up, and notice what he has to say. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days... God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should believe and hear the gospel. Now, be careful as you read this verse because that phrase, early days, some translations will say ancient days. Um, We're tempted to think that it's talking about a long time ago. It's actually talking about when Peter first shared the gospel with the Gentiles back in Acts 10. But if we don't pay attention to what Peter's talking about, we can be tempted to say, oh, a long, long time ago. No, it's actually just about 10 years ago when Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius. So it's still been a considerable amount of time, but it had only been about a decade. Peter's talking because God had used Peter to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And guess what? Peter didn't want to do it. Peter sees this vision from God. Remember the tent that, or the tarp that comes down? There's all this food on it. And what it represented was how God had made food that was once considered unclean to be clean. And in the same way, the Gentiles who were considered unclean, God tells Peter, you're going to go and share the gospel with them. That starts really this movement of Gentiles being saved. He says, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God used Peter to do this. Look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. I love that word that he uses, God who knows the heart. Another way you could say it is God, the knower of the heart. Why does God know the heart? Because God created the heart. God knows what's inside of each and every one of us. It's so funny sometimes when you talk to people when I deal with parents of kids sometimes, they'll say, well, my kid would never do that. My, my child would never do that. It must have been another kid. And I think, well, you don't know your kid then because I, because I saw them do it. God knows the heart. You can fool everyone. You can make everyone think you are a certain way, that you're a good person. But God sees your heart. And he uses this, or this illustration of who God is by saying, hey, God knows the heart. And he's the one who decided to share the gospel with the Gentiles. He knows what's in Jewish people's heart. He knows what's in Gentiles' heart. And he still wanted to share his gospel with them. And look at what he says. He says, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. Remember back during Pentecost when the Jewish people were saved, they started speaking in tongues and they started having these gifts of the Spirit. And the same thing happened when the Gentiles were saved as well. 
And what I think it was, it was a display that the Holy Spirit, that those people were saved during that time. God did it with the Jewish people. He did it with the Gentile people as well. It was a sign. And what Peter's saying is, what more do the Gentiles need? They've already been saved. They've already received the Holy Spirit. In fact, keep reading with me. Verse 9, and it says he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Why did they think the Gentiles were unclean? Because they weren't circumcised. The issue was of purity. They thought they were still sinful. But the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised to be made clean. God did that when he saved them. So there's no distinction between Jews and and Gentiles. Now, Peter's like, what more do you want from them? They're saved. They have the Holy Spirit. They're clean in their heart. And God is the one who is doing all of this. He's showing how there's no distinction between them. And it's in the same way that the Jewish people were saved as well. Some people that think there's a different gospel for Jewish people and Gentiles. It's all the same. It is God who works. And by the way, it was the same in the Old Testament too. The sacrifices, keeping the law. There was no Jewish person who could do all of that. You couldn't keep all of the law. Now, was it good to follow the law? Yes. Were there helpful things? Yes. It probably kept them from a lot of sickness, to be honest, and a lot of different things that would lead to their destruction. But the law was given to show them their sin, to show them that they were sinful and to point them to Christ, who was the only person who could keep the law. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Such an interesting phrase that he's using here. He starts by saying that they're putting God to the test. Now, I'm going to explain in a moment what I think he's saying with that. They're putting God to the test by putting a yoke of on the neck of the disciples. A yoke is what an ox would pull. It was something you put on their neck and they'd have to pull this heavy weight down the street. He's saying that by trying to make these Gentiles follow the Mosaic law, you're putting this heavy burden on them that they actually don't need. Have you ever been walking with someone and they always have to take the hard way? Maybe you're walking with kids and instead of just taking the escalator, they have to run up the stairs. Or maybe you're going on a trail, and instead of going on the nice sidewalk, they have to go through the ditch and through the bushes and over the sticks and through the puddles and get all muddy and stuff. And you're like, just walk on the sidewalk. Or maybe you're watching someone carry the groceries in, and it would just be easier to make two trips. But these kids, they want to carry the milk and the bread and all these other things and have as many bags as they can on both hands. And what normally ends up happening is the groceries just spill all over the place. Now, I know so much about that because that's what I used to do when I was a kid, okay? Then I learned that you really don't have to do all of that. They are adding this burden, but what Paul is actually saying is they're adding all these things to the Gentiles, but they really don't need to. For the kid who's not taking the sidewalk, they're taking a way that's actually not going to get them where they want to go. For the kid who's trying to carry too much, he's carrying too much and he's never going to be able to get it inside adding this burden of the law and of circumcision to these Gentiles was never going to save them. It would do them no good. 
And I love what he says after that. He says, by the way, our fathers, our ancestors, they couldn't keep the law. We couldn't keep the law either. Now, some Pharisees thought they could keep the law, but Christ exposes their hearts. But the way they used the law, it was not what was going to save them. It was by grace. And that's what he says in verse 11. That's such a great verse. The key of what the argument is here, it says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, no matter your race, no matter your ethnicity, no matter how much money you have, no matter if you've been in church your whole life or just started coming, you're saved by grace and it's nothing that you could do. There's nothing you can add to it. It's all by the grace of God. And God is the one who works this salvation. Just like the song we sang, it's finished on the cross. There's nothing more we have to add to our salvation. And in fact, when we add to our salvation, go back to the beginning of verse 10. It says, we put God to the test. What does he mean by that? You put God to the test. If you look at that word that he uses, it has ties back to the Old Testament, specifically Exodus 17, and then later on when Israel is in the wilderness. It refers to when the, the, the word actually means to test the character of something, to see if something is true. It refers to when the children of Israel were given a way to go by God. God says, hey, this is where you should go. I think most often of when God tells the 12 spies to go spy on Canaan, two came back and said, hey, it's great. It's a great land. We should go. God's going to give us victory. There's all these big clusters of grapes there. It's awesome. And 10 spies said, we can't go in there. It's too big. But that was what God had told them to do. And so you know what they did? They went their own way. And that way led them to 40 years in the wilderness where all of them died out who were older. In the same way, when you try to add something to the gospel, the gospel is, this is what God says you should do. This is the way you should go. You're saved by grace through faith. You confess your sins to God. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you put God to the test. You try to go your own way. You try to add something to the gospel. You know where it's going to lead you? Not to where you want to go. The same way that they had to be in the wilderness, it will lead you to your destruction. These people are putting God to the test by trying to prescribe a different way. But we're all only saved by grace. Now there's more to say in the second point, but let me just pause here for a moment and say this. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who say, yes, you're saved by grace through faith and baptism and communion and being a good person and doing all of these other things, fasting, giving to others, helping people, things that may not be bad, but they will never save you. I had one professor say, if you can do it, it's not the gospel. If you think you can do it on your own, it is not part of God's gospel. We're saved by grace. 
Friends, that is legalism. So many people misunderstand legalism. They think, okay, if you have strict rules or standards, you're a legalist. Maybe, actually, legalism is thinking that by keeping those rules and standards, I earn a relationship with God, that I have more righteousness with God. There is not an ounce of righteousness that you can add to your own salvation. God is the one who has saved us by grace. Legalism is thinking that you can earn more credit with God, more righteousness with God through these standards, rules, by keeping all of these things. And you can't. It's only by grace. Now, we're going to see later in this chapter, that doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. But what, they're real, what Peter is really trying to hammer in on right here is how we've been saved by grace. Notice with me how the crowd reacts. Look at verse 12. It says, And the assembly fell silent. And they listened next to Paul and Barnabas. So we've seen Peter talk. Everybody is quiet after Peter speaks. And then Paul and Barnabas give this report. And they say, hey, this theological concept that Peter's been talking about, this is how we've seen it play out in Lystra, in Derby, in Iconium, in all these different places. We've seen Gentiles be saved. We've seen them receive the Holy Spirit. They are clean, just like we are, saved in the same way through the same gospel. That's what they say in verse 12. It says what signs and wonders God had done through them. Paul healed someone. Paul was stoned to death and yet still lived to preach another day after that. Look at verse 13. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied. Now, James is an interesting person. He's the half-brother of Jesus who in the gospel seems to not want much to do with Jesus. And I haven't studied that out too much, but there does seem to be in the gospels a change that happens to James probably after the resurrection where he really believes his brother is the Christ. And he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now you might say, I thought Peter was the leader. Peter was a very important person in the head of the church. But Peter actually does travel to Samaria, to some of these other places. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And that's actually why I think we see him speak last. Notice what he has to say. It says in verse 13, after they'd finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter's Jewish name, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So Peter quotes Amos chapter nine. You can look at Amos in more detail later. What I'll say about it is Amos was an Old Testament prophet. We talked about him in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. He actually had some other occupations. He was a shepherd. He was a keeper of sycamore trees. So we kind of have a connection to him a little bit. But Amos was a prophet prophesying about not only what would happen to Israel, but also future things. And here he's talking about David's coming kingdom and how there are going to be Gentiles as part of God's kingdom program. So even from the Old Testament, what did they understand? Gentiles were going to be brought in and saved by grace, just like the Jews were. 
as God is restoring this kingdom, as it talks about in verse 16, talks about the remnant of Jews who would be saved. And then, and all who are Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, how they will seek the Lord as well. So Jews and Gentiles are part of God's kingdom program. Look at verse 19. James starts to make his judgment. He says, because of all this, because of what Peter said, and he saw how these things took place, he's the first person who witnessed to the Gentiles. And then based on what Paul and Barnabas reported, and then even how we see how this happened in Scripture, James brings forth a recommendation. And I think this does show us that James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, that he had an important role in that church. He first of all says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. What does it mean to trouble them? It means to add the law to them, to try to make them follow the law. He says we shouldn't trouble them with that. Why? Is that because the law is bad? No, it's because they didn't need to follow the law to become a Christian. So he says we shouldn't try to burden them with the law. Look at verse 20. Does that mean they can live however they want? No. It says, but should write to them to abstain from these things. What James is showing here is that even though we're not under the law, there are things written in the law that Jewish people were supposed to stay away from that Christians should stay away from as well. And notice what he says. He first of all says, things polluted by idols. There's a lot of debate over this. Some people think it's meat offered to idols, but Paul talks about that later and says, meat offered to idols is okay. You just need to show Christian liberty to those who think it's not okay. I actually think this is talking more about idolatry. Being part of these idolatrous feasts, they have these big temple feasts that worship pagan gods, so going there and eating, or any form of idol worship. Remember what the first commandment is? You shall have no other God before me. Something in the Old Testament law that still should apply to the Christian today. You should stay away from idol worship. Notice the second thing. He says, and from sexual immorality. It comes from the Greek word pornea. Any type of fornication, sexual sin that was part of the Old Testament law with Moses. They say, hey, you should still stay away from this sexual sin of all these different kinds. Then the last two, I think, go together from things that have been strangled, strangled in such a way, and this is a little gross, but where the blood has not been properly drained from the animal. And then it says for meat with blood. And I think that was for more dietary reasons because they couldn't cook the blood out of it if they'd not drained the blood from the animal. And so just for their own health, they say, hey, you shouldn't eat these animals with blood in them. Now, I think most of us would know that today, just when we're cooking, you know, this is something they still needed to remember from the law. Look at verse 21, how he ends. He says, For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in the Sabbath in the synagogues. Some people think he's trying to still talk well about the law of Moses. I think he's showing the difference between the Jewish people who followed the law of Moses and would still be in the synagogues. So Moses' law was still going to be proclaimed. But the Christians are under something new now. They are under grace, as some people would say. They walk in the Spirit.
And so that's how James ends his speech. Now, friends, I don't think we have the same temptations that Jewish people have. I don't know if we're tempted to tell Gentiles that they should be circumcised. I don't think anybody has a temptation to do that or to follow the Jewish law. But there are times when we can fall into legalism. And it's not just about having different standards in people. You might think someone is really conservative. That makes them a legalist. Not necessarily. No. Maybe they just have conservative standards. What is legalism? Thinking that by keeping those standards, I earn more righteousness with God. We can all fall in to issues of legalism. Trying to keep rules. It's not wrong to have standards. It's not wrong to try to be holy. But be careful to think that your standards earn your righteousness with God. You are saved by grace just like anyone else. There's some people who are more drawn towards that, who are more drawn towards rule keeping, who are more drawn towards doing what you're told. And then there's people on the other side as well that say, hey, I'm saved by grace. That means I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. Those are lawless people. They think that just because they have a relationship with God, it means they don't have to follow any rules. And James speaks to that as well. He says there's still things in the Christian life you should stay away from, not to earn your salvation, but because you're a Christian. And that's really what the rest of the New Testament talks about. Hey, if you're a Christian, you represent God now. You're not just talking for yourself. You are a representative of God. And you had better represent him well. I've got a friend who travels around. He's my friend Jake. He's going to be the best man at my wedding. He travels to different Christian schools and churches um, to represent the college that we went to, Faith Baptist Bible College. So he's, he's been in Florida. I think he's going to California pretty soon. I mean, he just gets to travel with his wife all across the country to present the college and talk to high school students about going to college. And oftentimes he'll talk about how he is a representative of the school and how that stops him from doing certain things. He says, hey, when I go to this restaurant, when I'm around these people, I'm not just representing myself. I'm representing the school who's actually paying me to go there. And all of us think, yeah, that makes sense. But if you're a Christian, you don't just speak for yourself anymore, but you speak for God. You're an ambassador, as Paul says, of Jesus Christ. So guess what? There's going to be people in the world who are going to look at how you act, look at the way you talk, look at the way you interact with people. And they're going to say, well, I guess if this person does that, then Christians think that is okay. We must be very careful in how we represent the name of Christ. Check your own heart. What things are you tempted to be legalistic about? Think you earn more righteousness with God about without noticing How do you represent God when you're around others? Do you try to earn God's favor apart from Christ? We see this recurring issue, this shared reasoning, and finally, what is a spirit-led resolution? We've seen some of it already. Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So Peter speaks, Paul and Barnabas speaks, James speaks. And the church says, hey, this is good. And that was a large group of people that they bring this. The Christian movement had become very large, especially in Jerusalem at that point. 
So it's very hard. It's a work of the Spirit, I think, that everyone agreed and knew, hey, this is what God has called us to do. You know what it's like if you've got a big group of people, even trying to get them to decide, hey, where are we going to go out to eat? That can take forever. Yet they knew this is what God had called them to do. So notice what they say. It says, they chose men from among them and sent them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They send two people, Judas, not Judas who betrayed Christ, another Judas, who I think is actually mentioned in Acts 1. He's also called Barsabbas. He was a leader in Jerusalem. We don't know very much about him, but he's mentioned here. And then a man named Silas. Now what Luke does, he loves to do this. He mentions Silas and he's foreshadowing Silas. He did the same thing with James a couple chapters ago. Silas is going to travel with Paul on his missionary journeys So he's kind of foreshadowing that he's going to be an important person later on in Acts. These were leading men in Jerusalem. And then it says they sent them with a letter. So they wrote a letter and this letter would go to all the Gentile churches in Galatia and um, Syria and Phoenicia. Now, I don't think this was Galatians. Some people think this was the book of Galatians. I think Galatians was written before this happened. But this is what the letter says. It says the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, by the way, notice apostles and elders are different here. It says to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. These were all cities that had significant Gentile churches there. It says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come of one accord, to choose men and send them with you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So they're saying, hey, we apologize. There were men that came from Jerusalem. They told you you needed to be circumcised to have righteousness with God. And that was wrong. They actually say, we did not send these men to you, but this is what they said. They were wrong in saying that. So now they send this message with Barnabas and Paul. And they send these two other people as well. He says, um, we send these men with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. So you might ask, why did they send Judas and Silas? Because they were in Jerusalem. They were part of the Jerusalem church. Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He loved the Gentiles, and he had been saying, hey, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. But Judas and Paul were in Jerusalem. They had Jewish background. They'd be able to say, hey, this is what actually happened, and confirm what Paul and Barnabas had said. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So those are the things we talked about. We don't need to go through them again. Keeping from idols, keeping from sexual morality, things strangled and from meat that had blood in it. It says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. These are the instructions to those Gentile churches. So very quickly with me, notice how this resolves. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Remember, Antioch was a very big church. I think it probably had a couple thousand Christians there. It was a big church. It was the biggest Gentile church, I think, in the Christian world during that time. 
So they're all gathered together. They read this letter to them. And look at verse 31. It says, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The Gentiles rejoiced. Why? Because they didn't have the burden of the law. They were set free from the law. Look at verse 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So those two people from Jerusalem, it says they're prophets. may have had the gift of prophecy during this time. But they encouraged people. They ministered there with Paul and Barnabas. Verse 33. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now we'll look at the rest of Acts 15 next week as part of our sermon next week. But what do we see? Judas and Silas go back to Jerusalem. Now I'll be honest, I'm still trying to figure this out because we're going to see Paul go with Silas on his next missionary journey later. And the language seems to think that he just grabbed Silas and went. doesn't really talk about him going to Jerusalem. But Silas goes back to Jerusalem. So some of the logistics of that we have to figure out, but that's part of next week's sermon. So that'll be something we talk about next week. Notice that Paul and Barnabas still stay in Antioch, preaching and teaching the word of the Lord. And the church is growing and encouraged. And why is that? Because they understood what is essential to the gospel. They've reached and agreements. This passage shows us that sometimes, even as believers, and I think some of these Christians who struggled with this were believers. Peter struggled with understanding, do these Gentiles need to be circumcised? Barnabas struggled with this as well. Sometimes we can fall into the habit of thinking we can earn our righteousness apart from Christ. Sometimes as believers, we get righteousness wrong. We think that we can earn righteousness. We think we don't need to care about righteousness because we're saved. I'd say by and large, the church needs to do a better job at understanding this. So as we close our sermon this morning, I want to talk about ways that we misunderstand righteousness. And then how can we find a solution to better understand it? And the first way is this. We think that rules and standards earn us righteousness with God. We think that rules and standards earn us righteousness with God. What do I mean by that? This is legalism. It's not just having strict rules. It's thinking, hey, if I fast, if I pray, if I do all these things, if I have baptism, communion, it earns me more righteousness with God. And so how do we fix this problem? There are many Christians or people who call themselves Christians and many churches who get sucked into this mindset. So how do we fix this? We remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that we have been saved by grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. What does he say after that? Not of works, lest any man should boast. We must understand righteousness when we think we can earn it in our own works. We need to understand that we're saved by grace. Secondly, we misunderstand righteousness when we think that righteousness with God means that we don't have to follow any rules. We think our righteousness with God, we're saved, we're saved by grace. That means I can do whatever I want. That's not true. 
The Bible still calls you to live a holy life. There are many people out there who call themselves Christians, whether they are or not, that's between them and God, who think, I can do whatever I want because I say that I'm a Christian. But that is not God's will for your life. So what do you need to remember? It's that God wants us to change. 1 Thessalonians 4, you don't have to turn there. Verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does that mean? You're set apart from sin. You don't sin any longer. You're set apart to God. Don't misunderstand righteousness. Righteousness doesn't mean that you can do what you want. It means that you are set apart to God, that he wants you to change. Thirdly, how do we misunderstand righteousness? We use assumed righteousness or unrighteousness to judge others. This goes along with number one. We think just because we follow these standards, that we dress a certain way, that we use this certain translation of the Bible, we think that makes us better than someone else. You know what we're doing? We're misunderstanding righteousness. What's the solution to that? You need to remember how sinful you were. Remember Titus chapter 3, as Paul is writing to Titus, he says, remind them that they used to walk in darkness, that they used to be misunderstood, that, hey, you weren't so pretty before you were saved. You struggled with all these sins, and guess what? We still struggle with sins. There's times in the Christian life where you think I've grown, I'm becoming more like Christ, and then you say something, you do something, you think something, and you think, where did that come from? And you recognize that your heart still has sin that needs to be cleansed, that you still aren't perfect yet. And that's okay. You confess those sins to God, you draw near to him, but don't misunderstand righteousness. Your assumed righteousness doesn't give you an opportunity to judge others, even those who are unsaved. This is what I worry about with the American church. And I've said it before. I worry that we will spend more time complaining, judging, looking down on unsaved people than we actually will in sharing the gospel with them. And that's not how we should live as Christians. Then lastly, how do we misunderstand righteousness? We test the character of of God. God tells us how we should live. God shows us what salvation is. I'm going to try it this way. I'm going to go down this way. And that is something that has been going on throughout all of human history. One random example. Remember David, when he wants to move the ark to Jerusalem, God says, hey, you get some priests, you move the ark, right? You have this ceremony that God has set up. He says, no, I'm going to go buy a new cart and I'll just move it that way. And what happens? The cart breaks down. Uzziah touches the cart and he dies. And you think, man, God is really harsh. Why would God kill him for that? No, God told David, this is what you're supposed to do. And David in his pridefulness and his foolishness said, I'm going to do it however I want. God has a way that we should live. He has a way of salvation. He has a way that he's called us to live. Don't think that you can go your own way. What's the solution? Submit to God's plan. Oftentimes we use Romans 8, 28 as an encouraging verse, and it is, but it reminds us as well that God's plan is better than our plan. You're not smarter than God. You don't have more knowledge than God. God sees all. He's wise. There are going to be things in life that just don't make sense. 
but we can submit to God's plan and understand that he is in control of all things. So ask yourself this morning, how do I misunderstand righteousness? Do I struggle with legalism? Do I struggle with lawlessness? Do I test the character of God? Do I judge others? This was an important moment in the life of the church in Jerusalem. This is important for us to think about as well. But ultimately remember this, that you've been saved by grace. And that is a beautiful thing because none of us could save ourselves. So we praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, how we've been saved by grace. It's not anything that we've done in ourselves. God, it's a gift. And it's a gift because it's not anything that we could earn. We needed it from you. So God, help us to respond according to your word this morning. Help us as we sing and as we remember what Christ has done for us to be thankful, to praise you and your son for cross. Help us as we go even later on today from this place. Help us to go and share the gospel with others, to show others how they can have the same grace that we've been saved with. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.